Hello and welcome to the Vote Her podcast, because when you vote, great things can happen. Hi, I'm Mara Davis, and I'm fully vaccinated, eating indoors, going back to yoga, and trying to get on the Georgia Angels team. That's what I'm doing. Yeah, and apparently, I'm one of the Georgia Angels. I'm Jen Jordan, and I'm a candidate for Attorney General right now, and uh, I'll be calling you soon enough for a donation, I'm thinking. Is that what you've been doing? You've been working the phones? Yeah, it's um, not my favorite thing, I have to tell you. Why? Well, it's because you're calling people you don't necessarily know, and you're asking for money. I mean, do you want, I mean, I'm like a, I'm like a political bill collector. It's like the worst. But if I answer the phone and it was you, I'd be kind of excited. Yeah, but would you give me money? That's the question. Well, I mean, I understand that cold calling is weird, but I also think that phone calls are a lost art, that people don't talk on the phone that much anymore. And, And especially when it comes to doing business, it's like, great, you can get things done in a call. You know, I hadn't thought about that in the in terms of it it being kind of different now because of how we communicate, you know, so much through text and email that it it may actually make it a more personal touch. It's just, you know, I just know how I am. Like, I don't, I I don't want to bother people. Right. And especially then you're asking them for money. It's like, I'm just like, it's the double whammy. But I think it may be better in the sense that people are so over getting text. And I think people have screen fatigue right now. And people are excited for human communication and things in person and a human voice. So don't be too hard on yourself. Yeah, all right, all right. I think maybe uh, my finance director put you up to all this. She didn't. (laughs) We we didn't even talk about this. I mean, uh, well, you know I love the phone. I I loved, I'll talk to anybody. I'm just so happy to get out. I mean, we're in your new headquarters right now. I know, it's crazy, right? You have your Jen Jordan for Attorney General office. Needs a little work, but you'll get get there. It does. DeKalb (laughs) County, you know, kind of the ground zero for uh, Democratic votes in this state. And so, you know, we're here and this we're open. My neighborhood, even though I live in Fulton, I'm, I'm literally on the line. So close well, and enough. You can get here. You can get here quickly. Right. OK, so a couple things we need to talk about before we get to our guest. You know, speaking of DeKalb County, we have a real rock star coming on in just a minute, a few minutes. But let's talk about Cobb County. This past week, minority leader... Kevin McCarthy came to town to give a riveting press conference at the Marietta Diner. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy had lunch with small business owners here at the Marietta Diner to hear how the loss of the All-Star Game has impacted them. I wish Major League Baseball would look at the faces. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy holds a news conference inside the Marietta Diner Tuesday afternoon and calls out Major League Baseball for its decision to relocate the All-Star Game from Truist Park after the passage of Georgia's new election law. McCarthy says that move only hurts the community and its businesses. The Marietta Diner is about six miles from the ballpark, and owner Gus Celios says 
everyone in the hospitality industry is highly disappointed. Anytime there's any discrepancies or difference of opinions, the best thing to do is try to negotiate, compromise, figure out a solution um, without something so drastic. The Democratic Party of Georgia issued a statement in response to McCarthy's visit, saying in part, Republicans hope these theatrics will distract from the fact that it was GOP legislation passed by Republicans in the State House and State Senate and signed by a Republican governor that forced companies to pull major economic projects out of Georgia due to nationwide fallout from the disastrous new Jim Crow law. But McCarthy argues the decision was based on misinformation and not the law itself. And for a lot of people that get an all-star game, that's Christmas for their business. That helps them go on to other months. I think Major League Baseball should find a way to make it up to this community. You know, so this is the deal. It's fascinating to me. Is it like this dude comes from California and then he's going to come to the Marietta Diner. And then what was absolutely fascinating is that the diner was packed and he's sitting there talking about kind of the economic impact on this particular restaurant in Cobb County. I haven't seen a diner that packed in a long, long time. I love that you brought that up. I also saw Stephen Fowler bring that up from GPB because it's true. The optics were really weird that it was bustling. That place is bumping all the time. And I can't, here's the thing. I can't figure out diners. I don't know how you can do like scrambled eggs or eggs Benedict and like have like lobster fettuccine Alfredo on the same menu. Okay, that's a lot. But I did look at their menu and I was like, how, what? And then there was a photo of former Senator Kelly Leffler who was there for another event. This seems to be the big GOP meeting place and people were eating chicken pot pie and it looked like a very big chicken pot pie. Let's get back to the facts. They're upset about <laughs> I, I go the straight MLB to the MLB game, which is crazy. So it looks like Kemp and co have decided that this is a good media hit for them because I have never, ever seen a political team or a political party beat a dead horse the way they have beat the MLB all-star game issue. It's, I think they feel that this cancel culture angle is a, is a winning stance to take. And it was really interesting how they, that he flew into town, did a whole press conference. People were up there speaking about all the economic impact on Cobb County. But my question is, and this is someone great to follow on Twitter, J.C. Bradbury, who maybe we've mentioned before, he's a professor at Kennesaw State University, he's an economist, and he's always talking about the you know, everybody's been bringing up a hundred million dollars economic, you know, loss. And that is just simply not true. And I wonder when you're at Truist Park, you're not going to Marietta Diner after a game or after the all-star game, I should say, if you're someone who's here from out of town. Yeah, no, no, you're not. I mean, that's what's kind of crazy. First, the number is completely off. And it's the number that MLB had pushed out there because they want these cities to fight for the All-Star game, right? So it's really kind of this this number that isn't really backed up by facts. And then the Republicans have kind of just run with it. And so it's just bizarre to me that they keep kind of, go. I mean, press conference after press conference. But I think you're right. I think they think that this cancel culture thing connects with their voters somehow. And, you know, we've talked about this before. I mean, the cancel culture thing you know, you got to be a little careful. 
it fascinates me because, okay, if this is a hot button for you, why aren't you there for the Dixie Chicks? I was thinking of Sinead O'Connor the other day. You know, remember she was sort of really shunned from everything for ripping of a picture of the Pope. You know, that was very controversial at the time where you could look at how is that different from Josh Hawley pumping his fist before the insurrection? So, you know, people are doing provocative things to get attention. So, but I think there's this weird double standard, especially when it's women. Yes, and I think that's kind of, what we're really starting to see, that it may not even be a partisan divide as much as it's, it really is about gender. So we can talk about Liz Cheney, who it has, I, you know, I, I got to say, Jen, I, I know I have a thing for blonde Republicans, and this is like an ongoing thing with me. I, they, I just, I, I'm, I'm fascinated and I want, I don't have any blonde Republican friends and I would like some. <laughs> I would. But here's this woman who is basically standing on the side of the truth and she is refusing to buy into lies. And she saw what we all saw January 6th at the Capitol. And they're saying, we've got to shut this woman up. I think she's got real problems. I've had it with, I've had it with, it's, you know, I've lost confidence. Well, someone just has to bring the motion, but I assume that would probably take place. Yeah. So what's really, really interesting about this, too, is that who her father is, right? You know, the former vice president, Dick Cheney. Look, Cheney used to be one of the most powerful people in the world for many years. And so now you have his daughter and she really is just telling the truth. That's all she's doing. She's she's just saying, look, all of this was a lie. We need to move on. That's basically her messaging. But man, they are bound and determined to take her out. It just shows the sexism that still goes on. I mean, you know, I, I often think that with the formerly the Dixie Chicks, the Chicks, that was as much of a woman thing as a political thing. I think that folks, men, let's, you know, let's be clear. I think they think they can go after women without really any blowback. But then they want to put in her place Elise Stefanik. Oh, but they're doing that just for optics because they've heard kind of the rumbling about, you know, this is really about sexism in a lot of ways. Right. So the more I've learned about her and the more I totally disagree with her policies on things. But I also like her because she's bright. She is classy. And you're talking about Cheney. I'm talking about Liz Cheney. Like when people were giving her crap for shaking the hand or fist bumping with President Biden when he gave his speech, people were giving her crap for that. And she was like, he's the president of the United States. And but I I do think that goes both ways, though. I think if you saw Elizabeth Warren shaking hands with President Trump, the left would give her a hard time, too. Yeah, I mean, especially kind of where we are in terms of the hardened partisan lines. I mean, where folks obviously feel like they can't even say the truth without being ostracized and pushed out of the Republican Party. But man, it's it's just fascinating because she actually is someone who is is leading, kind of trying to show them the way to lead them out of kind of the awfulness that they're in. And instead of listening or following her lead, 
they're they're just going to they're going to push her out. It truly amazes me. And that's why I have a lot of respect for her because she's not backing down. No. And let me be clear about Liz Cheney. I mean, there's a lot that I do not agree with. with Same. Yeah. I mean, a lot. Just not issues. She's she has she herself has been a lightning rod in terms of some of her words and behaviors and all that. But when somebody does the right thing, you know, we need to recognize it and and we we need to laud it in some way. I'm really excited to have the DeKalb County District Attorney Sherry Boston with us. And Sherry has a lot of accolades and first in a lot of categories. Uh, Sherry, it's so good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome. So the first... African-American. Okay, tell me what's the first, what you were okay, the first at. so not the first, but at the time that she was elected, she was the only African-American woman holding the office of district attorney. Correct, Sherry? As a black woman, uh, a leader, an elected official, a lawyer, you know, there have been a lot of firsts for me. I was the first African-American female to serve as part-time judge in Dunwoody Municipal Court, but when I got elected district attorney in 2016, there were no other African-American women um, serving in this role in the state of Georgia. And I'm happy to say in 2020, just a short four years later, there are now seven African-American women serving as district attorney in the state of Georgia. So it is stunning what can happen in four years. And I get a really big smile on my face when I think about the members uh, that have joined this illustrious club. What do you think was behind African-American women running for these these posts? And, and, and clearly, when they run, they win. And so, you know, because it's, it's, a, it's a big job. I mean, it's the top prosecutor in the circuit or in the county that you're in. So what do you think kind of pushed these women to, to run for these positions? Well, you know, I will say when I ran for district attorney in 2016, it was almost unheard of for there to be a challenger in district attorney races. And that's not just in Georgia, but all over the country, district attorneys were least likely incumbents to be challenged. And so what I think you saw happen between 16 and 20, and there was really a mobilization and a campaign by a lot of amazing organizations across the country that really asked people to get involved in their local races. And in particular, in district attorney's races and the power of the prosecutor who, in many places, made critical decisions around the criminal justice system. And so there were a number of us that got elected in 2016. But I think when people see folks that look like you, you're a woman, you're African-American, you know, you have a family. You're juggling all those responsibilities, but at the same time, looking for a way to serve. I think people get excited and they, they think to themselves, hey, if I see Sherry Boston doing that, I can do that too. And, and I, think, I think there was a lot of momentum seeing what I like to say is the less than 1%. When I was elected in 2016, less than 1% of elected prosecutors across the nation were African-American women. And I'm happy to report now that we're in 2021, I think we're actually close to 2%. 
you know, a long way to go. Woo woo! You double it. <laughs> we've, seen, we've seen women, and especially African American women, get elected to these roles across the nation in droves over the last, you know, four years. So it's it's been amazing to be a part of that transition and uh, that change, and to help people like me realize that if this is something you want to do and how you want to serve, you can absolutely do it. So in terms of this, this is what's interesting. And this is kind of, um, so with this podcast, sometimes we, we try to take a step back and, and, and educate in some way. And so with district attorneys, when you're talking about kind of on the front end, it's important who the district attorney is and who's, who's looking at the case and who's prosecuting it, because the district attorney makes the determination as to who to prosecute, right, in the first place, what crimes are going to be charged. And then also they play a big role in sentencing. So, you know, when we talk about criminal legal reform, obviously all of those are, are three biggies that we focus on. So, so who the prosecutor is, who the DA is, is a really, really important thing in these communities. Absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head, Jen. Those three areas are at the sole discretion of the prosecutor and who is leading that prosecution office, the policies that they set forth on how to approach all of those issues are, are dictated by your local DA. And so if you have a district attorney that takes a certain position on any of these issues, that will absolutely affect how the criminal justice system works in that community and for that community. And that's why these races are so important. And organizations like the ACLU with their smart campaign for justice campaign, which was really big, wants to make sure people understand that the criminal justice system really is moved by local prosecutors. And we need to make sure we hold them accountable. And I think the public is seeing that more and more perhaps play out in cases involving excessive force and brutality by law enforcement officers because now we are seeing on our screen prosecutors at press conferences talking about presenting cases or not presenting cases. And you are seeing district attorneys that lost races in their communities on the heels of a decision that the community perhaps thought was unacceptable. So people are using their voices at the voting box when it comes to district attorney. Do you think that, and it's something that you said, and I think that relates to the Chauvin trial too, it became so front and center where people were, were seeing it, obviously, the you know horrific video of George Floyd. But now people have taken an interest in true crime and people are seeing this in different ways now. So do you think more people want to get in the line of work that you're in because it's become more front and center? Well, it's actually interesting, Mara, that you say that because I, I speak at a lot of law schools and I've spoken to a lot of students and there are still uh, a lot of law students that feel like going into prosecution is not a good way or the best way to effectuate change in the system. Um, I hear a lot of students saying, I want to be a public defender or I want to be in the civil rights arena. And again, uh, those are wonderful places in the community. But for me, I always say as a prosecutor, every decision I make has the ability to affect 
hundreds, if not thousands. And oftentimes when you are working as a public defender or um, at a legal organization, you can only represent one client at a time and those are individual interests. So I firmly believe that if we have people going into prosecution with an idea that we can reform the system to one that is equitable and fair, then we really can effectuate real systemic lasting change. Well, and to kind of bring it back to an example in Georgia that people are aware of, for example, the Ahmad Arbery case, right? So you have a district attorney there who made a decision not to charge the folks that, in my opinion, murdered, murdered this, this young man. And it, so it took that video getting out and that case being taken away from that particular district attorney to kind of turn it around where now they're, I mean, they're facing trial for murder and they're also facing federal hate crimes, you know, allegations of federal hate crimes. So I think that's important because that is how much power a district attorney has in this state. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty incredible. And it's, it's, that's just the one case that obviously all of us in Georgia are familiar with because it got a lot of attention. But there are tons of other cases that don't have videos or aren't viral on social media where decisions are being made by a prosecutor every day that could mean the difference between someone being prosecuted and, and someone not being charged, you know, at all. That's a lot of pressure on you in your office. Do you feel that pressure? Absolutely. Absolutely every day. It is not easy to make these critical decisions. They're never done in a vacuum. I take great care and responsibility with my oath, understanding that Generally speaking, every decision I make every day, there is one side that is not happy with that decision, always. And so it's important for me to make sure that I'm always seeking justice and doing it in the right way with the right um, role, with the right perspective, and obviously always with the right ethical standards. But it's not easy um, making these decisions, but at the same time, I recognize that's what the people elected me to do, and I chose to run for this job. And now that I have it, I it is my responsibility to see it through to the bitter end, even when it is difficult. I'm going to point this question to you and Jen. When you see law shows on TV, are you like, this is ridiculous. This doesn't happen. <laughs> Sometimes I wish it did play out like that, right? Like there are these really complex, amazing trials that happen in 45 minutes and everybody looks great at the end of it and they always win. I'm like, yeah, that's not reality, at least not in the trials I've had. And I'm sure law and order just tears you up a little bit, Sherry. Well, you know, it's the same way, you know, law and order, not only the crime happens, it's investigated, solved, person is arrested, and they all get tried in 42 minutes, you know, and wrapped up with generally a big red bow on the end. And of course, we know that's not how the criminal justice system works. So, you know, law shows or prosecution shows are sometimes not for me, but other times it makes for good reality entertainment at, at some time. 
Well, you've worked with a lot of, you know, uh, great legal minds and, uh, you know, different attorney generals. And uh, have you done any work with uh, New York's attorney general, Letitia James? So I absolutely adore Tish James. She is simply amazing. We've not had an opportunity to work together professionally, but we have a personal relationship. And actually, I was on a panel with her the week before last where we were talking about women and black women in these leadership roles. And Tish is just, she's a, she's bad. She is a bad woman. I mean, she is, uh, you know, I, I, you know what I really want to say, right? Oh, like, I have a, I have a lady crush on her. Yeah. Mira loves <laughs> I her, Sherry. love her because she's so soft spoken. I mean, in the sense where it's like, I'm going to get you and then I'm going to smile after it and it's going to be fine because I did the work and um, I'm wearing a great suit. I'll see you later, y'all. <laughs> Maybe she doesn't say y'all because she's New York, but it's so smooth. But when she walks into a room, she's got a beautiful, commanding presence. She is fierce. And, you know, I will say this. One of the things that has been probably the biggest honor that I have had in the last four years is the opportunity that I have had to build relationships and friendships with some of the most amazing African-American women in the country. And so, yeah, when I think of just Jane, she's in just amazing at what she does and she is a rock star. But I also think about my, my sister, Kim Fox, state's attorney in Chicago and Rachel Rollins in Boston, who literally is one of my favorite people. She is the funniest person you will ever meet in your life. Or Kim Gardner in St. Louis that just fights through the mud and the grit every day to get the work done. I'm really blessed to call these women sisters and these women are in my life and will take my call and drop everything that they're doing and what I know is super busy running their cities to hear from me if I have a problem and I need to bounce it off somebody. So I couldn't ask for a better squad and they're amazing. And I can't wait to see all of the amazing things that I know that they're going to continue to do in their, in their career path. How's it going as far as like, well, you're not, I mean, you're dressed great. I mean, you look great. I mean, we're looking at you now, but I asked this because last week, Black Women Lead. Yes. <laughs> That's what t-shirt um, you're wearing right now. But like, what's it like for both of you knowing you've got to like start to get your like big girl clothes on after a, a year? I mean, it's like putting on suits and stuff. That's going to be a little culture shock. Yeah, I've had to um, think about exercising some <laughs> just so I don't have to go out and buy a whole new wardrobe. But it is weird because we've all kind of got into the more relaxed kind of mode. And, you know, when you're a lawyer, I mean, you have a, a uniform, right, that you need to put on and, and you have to kind of, you know, you have to put off a certain vibe. So, yeah, we're going to have to, I think we're going to have to start putting on real clothes, Sherry. Yeah, I, I've started that over the last Four weeks or so, I've been going into my office a little bit more and, and dressing the part so I can get used to it. It's, you know, you don't realize how easy it was to give up the suit and the hair and the makeup <laughs> and all of those things 
And it became so much a part of, it was a part of my life as an elected official, as a woman leading an office. And I think for us as women, I know that I felt the need to, to look camera ready 24-7 all the time. And that was my routine. And I will tell you, coming home from the last year and not having that type of external pressure has it's changed me. And I'm looking forward to how I receive that change as I move forward and go back and realize that maybe I don't have to be that camera ready 24-7 hair, makeup, nails all the time. Um, but there is another way to approach it. And I, I will tell you, you know, I struggle with that. But I, I, I think it's worthy of the conversation yeah. of what that looks like for us as professional women. I think so. You know, there was an op-ed about this in the New York Times today, actually, written by an author, Jennifer Weiner. And she talks about how like, and she's a great author. I love her books. But she I just... I love her books. I've read all of them. Oh my God, she's the best. <laughs> I love her so much. So, but she wrote this about how like you know, if you're beating yourself up to get back in your clothes again or whatever, how, you, how you're feeling like when you're coming out of this. And her point was you should feel great about the body that you have that got you through this pandemic. That That's really what to focus on. And, and that, I, gosh, that resonated with me so much where it's like, you know, let's, let's make the most of what we have. And, and, you know, we're not defined by that. And I think what you're saying, Sherry, is really powerful too, because you're like, hey, I know I'm a badass. So like some days I'm going to feel, I'm going to wear something some days, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. And, you know, I will, I will say like, just kind of shifting the conversation a little bit about, I think for black women, because Jen knows this, I, I have a Peloton. And I, before the pandemic, I, I wrote it, but it wasn't a part of my daily routine. I was trying to make it a part of my daily routine. But one of the reasons that it was hard to implement as a daily routine was because as a black woman, exercising and wetting your hair out every day is a challenge when you are oftentimes trying to live up to a certain standard of beauty, right? And so being home during this pandemic, I started riding my Peloton every day. And I started wearing my hair curly, which people have never seen, right? Um, and I struggled with that. And, I, and I'm saying past tense, but really it's present tense. I still struggle with it. Like there's still a part of me that struggles with that, that dynamic of beauty. But at the same time, I haven't. You know, I've, I've lost weight during the, the quarantine. I feel better. I'm definitely healthier. I'm totally in the cult of Peloton. Yes, so you I are. I love riding every day. <laughs> it, makes me, <laughs> it makes me feel good. And so now I'm at a crossroads. Like, I've got to figure this thing out, right? Which doesn't include getting my hair blown out every morning after I ride the Peloton. I'm, I, you know, I don't, I don't make that kind of money in government, right? So there is, there is like this, this dynamic, but it's a conversation that a lot of professional black women have been having for years. But I think the quarantine has really pushed that to the surface. 
So, but even in addition to that, I mean, we go back to the political place. I mean, because politically, there really is a double standard between men and women in terms of expectations of how they dress and how they look and how they present themselves. And, you know, you were talking about the external pressure. I mean, it's pretty significant. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, it is a different standard for men than it is for women. I mean, you know this, Jen, from running. When people look at our campaign ads, our postcards, our flyers, our website, there is this expectation that we want a candidate that is intelligent and smart and articulate and it's all the things. But let's not get it twisted. The community also is really interested in the highly attractive candidate. Oh, there's no right? doubt. There's no doubt. And, and I don't see that same standard with men. No, now, I'm you're not right. Saying, right. I, I'm not saying that it can't be. I mean, we've got, you know, I, I'll never forget. I mean, when, when Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan was running, I mean, everybody talks about how great his hair was, right? <laughs> and he does have this full head of amazing hair, right? I mean, his teeth are really, really white. <laughs> He's like guy smiling, he looks like. He's just yeah. like, hello, I'm a handsome man. You know, he just has that look. But yeah, I think you're right, Cherry. I think it, you know. But for Jeff Duncan, I think, you know, it was like, it, it was an extra that people talked about, but it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, you must look like someone like Jeff Duncan in order to run in this role. There's plenty of men that aren't falling into that, that, you know, great hair, white teeth category. But I think for women, it's the opposite. Yeah, I can tell you that there are plenty of politicians that are men and elected officials that do not fall into that category whatsoever. And we're not going to call them out, even though I'm dying to right now. I'm dying to name some names, but we are a classy organization here. If you say so, Mary. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so exciting to talk to you. Uh, District Attorney of DeKalb County, Sherry Boston, is like, I can't wait to give you a big hug in person. Who's your favorite Peloton teacher? Cody Rigsby. He is my boo. Oh, Cody Rigsby. Yeah. Okay. I'm Jen Sherman <laughs> all the way, but yeah, yeah, and I'm nobody. <laughs> I mean, y'all make me, I mean, I. it makes me crazy because like every time like Sherry and we get with a, our group of friends and everybody just starts talking about the Peloton and I'm just like, I just want to kind of go into the corner because I'm like, man, I am such a loser because I am not doing this. Well, here's, I feel like a loser because it's in my house and I'm not doing it. So yeah, I give props to you, Sherry, for doing it every day. Um, and with all the work that you're doing, well, well, we'll definitely be watching everything that you're up to. I mean, there's always something happening in Georgia. It's never boring here and it's never boring in DeKalb County. That's right. No, it's not. And I, I would totally take boring for a day, a week, a month, a year. I'll, 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 I'll you know. Spread some fairy dust around with all the magic that y'all do and then be quiet over the cab. Well, we so appreciate you joining us today and we'll have you back, especially because there's crazy stuff going on, right? Yes, I would love to come back and chat with you ladies. I, I, once again, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm such a fan girl. So to get to chit chat with two amazing women, you have made like my year. So Aww. please, I would oh my love to come back 
Oh, well, we want you to come into um, Jen's new office. So I know, I've got an office space in yeah, so, County. So we'll have you come in in person and then I'll take you up on the Peloton. I'll, I'll ride along with you one day. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm gonna, you're going to have to look for me, follow me on uh, Peloton. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, this has been so awesome. It's so nice to, to talk to you and uh, we'll definitely do it again. All right, well, that was great. I love her. She's like one of my favorite people because, you know, she was talking about uh, when Letitia James comes in the room, like when Sherry Boston walks into the room, Sherry Boston walks into the room. I can tell. And and I wanted to be in person because that was just, you know, here she was just like doing like badass lady stuff and like her black women lead t-shirt. And I saw some like activity. Why do you do this? Whenever we have a guest... You have the person looking at me and not you. Because you're so interactive with them, you know, in terms of the back every and forth. Every time. Every time. It's really funny. You're like, hey, Sherry, what's going on? All right, here's Mara. Because <laughs> well, I'm like, Mara, you're so interactive. And then you can look at them. Like I'm over here, you know, doing all this crazy stuff. With Jen's, you're doing the lawyer thing. You're like writing right, notes, I'm you're doing things. Notes. And I'm like, hey. What do you think of like lawyer TV shows? <laughs> Isn't that dumb? <laughs> I hope she wasn't like, um, that was a dumb question. <laughs> yes. I'm sorry. Oh my God, it made me laugh out loud. <laughs> Everything's about like, uh, what, what are they eating and what was on TV? That's why I'm not running for office or holding a public office like you ladies. All right. Wanted to bring this thing up. Because this was actually a big story this week, and I think this leads to a cause that's familiar to you and Sherry as far as women leading. And so the census came out and it shows that like our population is shrinking, like people are not having kids. They're having less kids. And why is that? And there have been a lot of factors that are contributing towards that. And that is so much because of, you know, she's a black woman lead. Women are leading women are working and they're having kids later. But also... Child care is so expensive. Yeah. I mean, so when you are making these decisions, you know this, like you're having to say, if I work versus how much does child care cost? And almost it always happens with women I know, like once they get to two kids, almost always they kind of pull themselves out of the job force because they're like, I'm not making enough to cover what it's going to cost to actually provide care for these children. And not only that, this like, I think covers the political spectrum. There was an interesting clip from The View, my favorite show. Uh, Don't worry, it's going on hiatus in the summer, so I will be talking about it. But here's Megan McCain talking to Elizabeth Warren about worrying about getting pregnant at work. But the point of the story is how close I came not to being able to finish my education. And then I tell another story later, how close I came to losing my job, my first big teaching job, when I couldn't get childcare. And here's the part that just makes me grind my teeth. That was me two generations ago. My daughter faced the same thing when her babies were born. And if we don't make changes, my granddaughter will face the same things. So it's about why policy is personal, but the changes we need to make and can make right now. 
Well, Senator Warren, I hope I have another question in prompter, but I just want to extrapolate on a personal level after that. I actually, we texted each other when I was pregnant and then after I gave birth and I was very scared and I was very hormonal. And for some reason, you were a lovely person for me to talk to oh. these feelings about. And I actually was scared I was going to get fired for being pregnant, and it's not rational, but I thought if I'm a you know, co-host of this big show and I work for ABC and Disney and I'm worried about losing my job and then on top of everything else having to do with how conservatives should be caring about the family and caring about women and caring about uh, you know, the, how people are treated in companies, the fact that you were worried, you're worried about your granddaughter being worried and I was worried. I've actually been disappointed that more Republicans haven't gotten on board and seen the bigger picture on this because you've done so much advocacy. And I can honestly say you really put your money where your mouth is and you're, you're, you care about women, clearly. I mean, I'm a Republican. You care about how I was feeling. What do you think we can do to bring more Republicans on board with this issue? Because I really think it's, it's a big reason why we're having so many problems in this country is that women really are punished still for having children. You know, Megan, I want to start by saying thank you. It is good you. that you are speaking out. No, this is true. This is about lifting our voices. This is about persisting. It's about saying these policies are personal. They touch our lives. And for a long, long time, men in the United States Senate and Congress in the White House have talked about infrastructure. We need infrastructure. And every time they say, it, you know what they're talking about? Roads, bridges, broadband, and those are all important, true. But we also need childcare. I find this really interesting. Number one, I love how these two women on both sides of the aisle are, are connecting with each other. But that when you're in a high power to seem position, both of them saying to, for me to get pregnant, I, it worries me about how I'm going to be looked at in my company. Well, so those women, right? Just imagine just being a regular person and being worried about keeping your job, being able to kind of keep up with things. I mean, look, the state of Georgia didn't even have maternity leave. I mean, they just recently, I think the governor finally signed something we passed this this year. And I think it's only like three weeks or something. Three weeks maternity leave. Three weeks is nothing. And, you know, when men, you know, it's kind of funny because now there's been more paternity leave for men. Like certain companies are giving that. And which I think is really important because you both need to be home. And it's mostly like the husband needs or the daddy needs to be there to sort of, it's, I mean, it's a lot. But it has to be a cultural change too. Because I remember when I had my kids, so my husband worked at a law firm that was kind of an international law firm, right? And they had offices in California. So paternity leave, it was, it's a norm internationally. So of course, it has to be across the board for the law firms. But then it was made very clear to him locally that maybe he shouldn't take it. And so until we kind of change that, the culture, in, in terms of families and, and men being full partners, too, we're going to continually bump up against this. Well, and in Georgia, uh, it's like one of the worst states for working moms because there's just not the programs for them to get back to work. And uh, I mean, this is why I think it's so important to elect women, because 
living the life as a, as a woman, whether you have the means for childcare or you don't, at least it's someone who has walked a mile in your shoes. And I, I hate sometimes like, I have a daughter and I have a mother. And you know, and like when a, mo- a lot right. of- I have a mother. Well, no, <laughs> duh. How did you get here, right? Right. But it's like if, you know, yeah, that- they always say that as if they they can understand or they know exactly what's going on. But I think one thing that the pandemic has shown us is that childcare and leave and all of that really is kind of part of thinking about the economy. And women are a huge economic driver, right? And so when they couldn't go to work or when they were kind of at halftime because they're dealing with virtual school because it always, it's almost always, always the mom that, that deals with it. I mean, it has, I think it's had a real impact in, in terms of the bottom line. Yeah. So I think that is some of the stuff that's contributing to population rates getting lower. They're also saying that it's because teenagers are, you know, there's not as many problems with teen pregnancy. And uh, of course, because of the internet too. I mean, what? Uh, okay. I'm not quite sure. Well, what here's the... what I mean by that. Teenagers are on their phones more. Oh. And, you know, when you didn't have your phone, you were out and about up to no good. Now you don't want to, your kid's not leaving your room, their room. And also, I mean, people don't want to hear this, but like kids are have accessibility to porn too. And also there's more education for kids as far as like teen pregnancies because they, they know and they're, it's being talked about in sex ed and stuff like that. So there's less of a teen pregnancy uh, epidemic that maybe there was before. Well, you know, if, if that's actually what's kind of causing some of the numbers to come down, then and that may be a good thing. It may be. It may be. But this is definitely stuff to look at. Um, before we uh, wrap up, one funny story I wanted to bring up is, you know, they booted Trump off Facebook, which, you know, here's the weird thing about that, which and he announced like a new social media platform, which is basically a blog, which kind of cracks me up. You know, Jen, is it more of a problem of what Facebook is doing or is it more of a problem of the media amplifying every single thing that he says? So would it matter anyway, you know, like if he got on Facebook and could sort of like, you know, just vomit out horrible stuff, but then it gets reported on? So I think the issue is that I think they're almost symbiotic because because he had so many followers on social media, The I think media you know, kind of the the traditional media felt like they needed to report it, right? So it was kind of this this really bad relationship. Yeah, because it was good for the TV networks too because they were getting the clicks and they were getting the views. But uh, it's an interesting murky waters that Facebook is in. And I think, you know, them saying, you know, meanwhile, they just punted it back to Zuckerberg, basically. They're like, all right, six months, sorry. We got to re- reset and see how it's going. But what's interesting and especially for you, because you're in the fundraising game right now. I know you don't like calling people, but they were really banking on that Facebook because for fundraising. Yeah. And there, after everything happened, you know, in November and Facebook really pulled back on political ads, in part because there was so much misinformation that was getting pushed out. And so it was a real problem. I know I know at least the U.S. Senate campaigns were complaining on both sides because they're like, how are we have to communicate 
to these folks that we want them to vote or whatever it is the messaging is. And Facebook has become such kind of a part of that that when you take that away, I mean, I think folks were like, we don't even we don't even know what to do. Yeah. But also it'll be interesting because people have screen fatigue. They like phone calls. So if your phone rings and it's Jen Jordan, please answer the phone and be nice. Be nice. And hey, if you want to give some money, you can do that too. But it's Jen, the number four in GA.com. <laughs> That's it. Um, thank Christina Laringer for always doing such a great job editing and our, our music terminus records. And thank you to everybody who rates and reviews our podcast and Apple Podcasts. Please leave a comment. We love that. And you can always, I mean, listen, you know where to find us at Senator Jen, at Mara Davis on Twitter, at Podcast Vote. Um, you know what? Send it to me and I'll get it to Jen. She's very busy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk to you next time.